0: Okay, so we're going to be in the book of Acts. We've been working our way through Acts, and we're in chapter 4 today. Beginning in verse 32, and actually we're going to go through a chapter break. We're going to read from Acts 4.32 to 5.16. That's going to be our section today. And I've asked Debbie if she would do the reading. Will you still do that, Deb? Okay, maybe you should... Yeah, let's, let's, it's Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 32.
1: And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. And with great power the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was upon them all. But there was not a needy person among them, for all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales, and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each as any had need. Now Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth, who was also called Barnabas by the Apostles, which translated me to son of encouragement, and who owned a tract of land, sold it, and brought the money and laid it at the Apostle's feet. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property, and kept back some of the price for himself with his wife's full knowledge, and bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the Apostle's feet. But Peter said, Ananias, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit, and to keep back some of the price of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why (laughs) did you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. And as he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came over all who heard of it. The young men got up and covered him up, and after carrying him out, they buried him. Now there elapsed an interval of about three hours, and his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Then Peter responded to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for such and such a price? And she said, Yes, that was the price. Then Peter said to her, Why is it that you have agreed together to put the Spirit of the Lord to the test? Behold, the feet of those who have carried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out as well. And immediately she fell at his feet and breathed her last. And the young man came in and found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came over the whole church and over all who heard of these things. At the hands of the apostles many signs and wonders were taking place among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's portico, but none of the rest dared to associate with them. However, the people held them in high esteem. And all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women, were constantly added to their number, to such an extent that they even carried the sick out into the streets and laid them on cots and pallets, so that when Peter came by, at least a shadow might fall on any one of them, Also, the people from the cities in the vicinity of Jerusalem were coming together, bringing people who were sick or afflicted with unclean spirits, and
0: they were all being healed. Thank you. Thank you for reading that. Um, Just because I'm standing today to teach doesn't mean that we can't have interaction. I just want to make that statement. So if you have a question as we're going through, you can ask it. Um, There might be some questions I'm going to ask of you and feel free to respond, okay? Just so everyone understands up front. But let's pray. Father, we, we come before you through the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Through his shed blood, we come to your throne of grace, Lord. And we pray that your spirit might quicken us, might quicken our understanding. Give us ears to hear, Lord, what your spirit would say. We pray, Lord, that you would mold our hearts, that they would be obedient to To apply and to obey what your word is directing us to today. We pray for insight and application of the word of God. That you would sanctify us and make us like your son Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. So over the last several weeks, we've been examining the remarkable life of the early church. And we've seen that the early church was continually devoted to teaching, to worship, to fellowship to prayer and to evangelism. And God was bearing witness to what the apostles were doing by performing signs and wonders through them. And one example would be chapter 3 of uh, Peter going up to the temple and healing the man who is lame from his mother's womb. And not only that but their bold preaching and these miracles were continually getting them into hot water. We saw that last time Um, with the, the spiritual authorities there in Jerusalem. But in spite of that, the disciples were full of faith, and they were vibrant in prayer, and they prayed that God would not stop the persecution. They prayed that they would continue to preach boldly, which would mean they would have even more persecution. So it's kind of the opposite of what we might expect. So this morning... We've been looking at the the life of the early church through one window, we're going to come over here and look at it through another window. And what ties this entire section together from Acts 4.32 to Acts 5.16 is the word great. It's the Greek word mega. You'll find it in verse 33 Acts 4.33, and with great power The apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And abundant, it's probably not the best translation there. Because it's exactly the same word as we had earlier with great power. And great grace was upon them all. So there's two instances of the word great. If you go over to chapter 5, look at verse 5. As he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came over all who heard of it. And then verse 11, and great fear came over all the church and all who heard of these things. So here we've got mentioned great power, great grace, and great fear. And that's what I want. That's the thread, I think, that holds this section together. The Holy Spirit is showing us something about the early church, and he's showing us that this early church, God's great grace was upon them, God's great power was upon them, and God's fear was upon them. Sometimes we romanticize the early church. We, we can tend to do that, right? And we can all, even idolize them as though they were perfect. They weren't a perfect church. Uh, just read the book of Corinthians. They had all kinds of problems. But they were a powerful church. There were things we could learn from them. They, they, they did set us a good example in many areas. And those are the areas I would like us to think about today. Not only just your own personal life, but us as a family of God that we might see great grace, great power, and great fear in our midst as well. Ultimately, any greatness in any church is due to the fact that they have a great God. God is the one that makes a church great, not the church itself. It's Him. So let's talk about great grace. Let's notice what it says here. Acts 4.32-37 The congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul, not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. And with great power the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. and abundant grace was upon them all, for there was not a needy person among them. For all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales, and lay them at the apostles' feet and they would be distributed to each as any had need. And then it goes on in verse 36 and 37 to speak about one particular person who did sell attractive land. His name was Barnabas. We have a That's going to be important when we get to chapter 5. Now, the first grade is great power in verse 33. But I'm going to skip over that one for now and we'll get that at the very end. You'll probably see why when we get there. We're going to explore this idea of great grace. So the Greek word behind abundant is mega. We have all kinds of English words that we use mega around, don't we? Megaphone. What's a megaphone? <laughs> it's like a bullhorn, right? It's, it's a large phone. It's not a little phone, it's a big phone where you can speak to lots of people over a long distance. Or a megadose. That's a huge dose of whatever it is you're taking. It's more abnormally large, right? A megabyte. Large number of bytes. You know, MB on your computer, or um, a megalomaniac, you've ever heard of that? That's someone with a, a mental illness who has grandeurs, delusions of greatness beyond what he actually is. So the word mega is talking about large or great or abundant, very large or abundant, abnormally so. And what I love here in verse 34 is that the New American Standard Version starts off with the word for. The accuracy of the NASB here is solid gold because a lot of translations don't start off verse 34 with the word for. I think it's crucial because it tells us something. It tells us that what's going on in verse 34 is related back to what we find in verse 33. And in verse 33 we're told that great, mega, abundant grace was upon them. How do we know that God's great grace was upon them? Because there was not a needy person among them. For all who are owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales. So the demonstration of God's great grace upon this church was their sacrificial giving and their care and their love for everybody within the Christian community. If there was a, a wonderful supernatural spirit of love that was permeating through the entire body of Christ. They wouldn't let somebody be in need in the early church. There was no poverty in the early church. They took care of them. They didn't have social security, they didn't have welfare, they didn't have Medicare, but they took care of the needs of the people in their midst, which is a a wonderful example. I I think we have lost that in our our generation today. You know, most of the time when we think about God's grace, We think about His saving grace, don't we? If you think about the grace of God, you think about forgiveness. You think about eternal life, adoption, justification, all those wonderful truths. But when it speaks about the grace of God here, it's not talking about that. It's talking about sanctifying grace. God's grace was causing a great love within the church to well up and to want to give, to take care of each other. So it was the grace of the Holy Spirit working in each person to to show the love of Christ throughout the body of Christ. So the grace of God is bigger than, than saving grace. There's other facets of the grace of God, and here we see one of them. Now, verse 32 says, The congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul. So what do you think it means that these early believers were of one heart and soul? What's that talking about? United. Okay, there's oh, there's unity. One heart, one soul. It, it makes me think that they were longing for, craving, loving the same things. Their heart and soul was set upon the same thing as their brother and sister. That's why there was unity, because they all were pursuing the same thing together. Like-minded. Yeah, like-minded, like affections even, you might say. The the love for Christ was within each one of them. And so their hearts were knit together in love. There is an intimate close bond between the brothers and sisters in Christ. And what did this deep spiritual unity result in? Verse 32. No one claimed private possession of property. No one was claiming that anything belonging to him was his own. But all things were common property to them. So, what that tells me is that they weren't content to go on living in comfort if they knew of a brother or a sister who is living in need, who is suffering. And that just makes sense, doesn't it? If we're a family, how can one person just ignore, callously ignore the needs of somebody else and just live in his comfort? It's not right. I think in 1 John chapter 3, he even says that. Um, how can you. Look on somebody else who is in need. How does the love of God even abide in you? uh, John says. So they put all their stuff in an open hand. People were more important than possessions. What was most important was Christ and his people. Not me having my extra home or my extra tract of land or my, my boat or my whatever it is. What was important is that the people of God were taken care of. Now, some people have tried to compare what was happening here to communism. They say this is like a Christian communism. But there's a lot of differences between what was happening here in the scripture and what happens in a communistic country. Uh, Charles Ryrie has written this. He said, the sale of property was quite voluntary. We find that from chapter 5 when Peter speaks to uh, Ananias. So, the right of possession was not abolished. The community did not control the money until it had voluntarily been given to the Apostles. The distribution was not made equally, but according to need. You see the differences? So he says these are not communistic principles, this is Christian charity in its finest display. And I have to agree with him. What we're seeing here is the love of God overflowing in the hearts of God's people to take care of each other. So here are some questions for us to consider this morning. Do we use people to win possessions or do we use possessions to win people? How do you regard your possessions, your, your bank account, your finances? Owners of land or houses sold them. So this isn't us going through our closets and finding all the stuff we don't want anymore and taking them to the Salvation Army. <laughs> This was somebody who had an extra home worth maybe a half a million dollars, and selling that and saying, "Hey, these brothers and sisters need it. They're living hand to mouth. They can barely get by. They need some help. I'm going to take that money and help them get by." It says, "As any had had need." In verse, what verse is that? Verse 34. There was not a needy person among them, for all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each as any had need. So apparently the houses and lands weren't sold until it became evident that there was a need. Somebody had a need? Okay, someone else in the body says, I can do something about that. I've got some resources. And evidently there were some wealthy people there in the early church. Barnabas had an extra tract of land, tells us he had some financial means. And it wasn't just him, we we read that many people were doing the same thing. So can we say, this is a hard question to ask, but can we say there's great grace here at the bridge? It's a hard question. In In regard to that. Is there a spirit of sacrificial giving to one another? Or do we allow someone who's in, in a lot of need just to go on in need while we just hoard up our monies and have no regard for them? So let's be in, in prayer. Let's be thoughtful. Let's, let's ask the Lord to, to manifest His great grace among us. That that would be a mark. I call this message Three Marks of Greatness in the Early Church. This, this is the first one. And it wasn't their own grace. It was the grace of God poured out upon them. But wouldn't it be wonderful if we saw the same pouring out of God's great grace among the church today? Okay, the second one is great fear. And that comes up in Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, with the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Notice the very first word of chapter 5, verse 1. But. What does the word but tell you? It's a contrast. Contrast between what and what? Go back to chapter four. The two verses we just read, 36 and 37, is about Barnabas. Barnabas was a great example of someone who sacrificially give to the church. So there's a contrast between Barnabas on the one hand and Ananias and Sapphira on the other hand. So as Luke writes this, he wants to tip his hand that something Contrasting is coming up in chapter 5, verse 1 through 11. What was the sin of Ananias and Sapphira? Somebody said something there. Did someone say lying? Yes. Yes, yes. I think you're right, because in verse 3, he says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart? To lie to the Holy Spirit. Verse 4, Um... You have not lied to men, but to God. So twice he mentions lying. So deliberate self-deception is what was going on. The, the problem was not that they didn't give everything that they sold the property for. That was within their control. They, they, no one was forcing them to sell their land, and nobody was forcing them to give everything from the land they sold. It was under their voluntary choice to make that decision or not to make that decision. Um, Peter Peter says that in verse 4, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? You had the right to do with that property whatever you wanted to do, it was yours. And after it was sold, was it not under your control? You could give a dollar of it or you could give all of it. It's under your control. The problem was not that, the problem was that they lied to the Holy Spirit (laughs) concerning this matter. They they said they sold the, the land for this price And that they gave that price, which was a lie. Now, why would somebody tell that kind of a lie? What's the motive behind lying like that? Yeah, I think it had to do with wanting the the praise of man. Because they had just seen Barnabas. He sold everything. He took it to the apostles' feet. That was well known throughout the church. He was receiving maybe accolades. Credit was being given to him for this great deed, you know. And they... They saw all of that, and they thought, "Ah, we'd like to have some of that too. You know. So they sold it. They kept some back, but they said they gave it all. Because they won the praise of man as well. The praise of man can be a great snare. Jesus taught us not to let our right hand know what our left hand's doing. He didn't want us to be doing things for the wrong motive. And isn't it hard to get pure motives when you do things? So often, So often we can be doing these great things on the outside with rotten motives on the inside. I was just watching a a documentary about this guy who was a great preacher. Um, Great, he he would evoke such emotional responses in his people, made a lot of money through his preaching, but yet he was preying on little girls in the congregations and getting them pregnant. Appearing to be righteous on the outside, but yet rotten motives on the inside. So we just have to be careful of our motive. That's one of the things we can learn from Ananias and Sapphira, that their motive wasn't right for what they were doing. So the, word, uh, the phrase here, kept back, in verse 2, he kept back some of the price. The only other place in the New Testament where that Greek word is found is Titus 2.10, where it's translated pilfering, which means to steal. So that leads me to the implication that perhaps they had made this public pledge or public commitment that they were going to be giving all of this money, and when they kept it back it was actually a form of stealing because in their hearts they had already given it over, but now they're stealing it back. They're taking back what they'd already committed to give. So here we have the sin of lying, perhaps the sin of seeking the praise of man other than the praise of God, and perhaps also... Stealing would be part of that if they've already made this commitment to give all of it and they're taking it back. So, how did God respond? <laughs> it took lives. Not too good. Killed them. Now, I've heard certain preachers say that no, God didn't kill them. What happened is that when they heard what Peter said, they had a heart attack. That's <laughs> God had nothing, they said God had nothing to do with that. It was just they had a heart attack and they fell down dead. And I, I think it's because in their theology they, they don't have room for a God who would actually kill somebody. But I do have room in my theology for that because in the Bible it, can't, it happens. It happens in the Bible. Um, Nadab and Abihu in Leviticus chapter 10. They offered strange fire, God killed them. Remember Uzzah, who touched the ark so that it wouldn't drop under the ground? God killed him. (laughs) Um, In the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, people who were were abusing the Lord's Supper, some were sick and others slept. In other words, they died as a result of that abuse of the Lord's Supper. So this isn't something that is unworthy of God. Now it doesn't say that these Ananias and Sapphira went to hell, that they were eternally condemned. The Bible doesn't say that, it just said that they died. And maybe sometimes God's discipline of His children is so swift and severe and stern that He has to take a life in discipline. Not to condemn them to hell, but to keep His church pure. I think that's one of the reasons God was concerned for the purity of this early church. And this was the way He was going to preserve that purity by dealing swiftly and severely with sin. Yeah, I think the Lord, and look at chapter 5, verse 13. It says, none of the rest, the rest means the rest of the people there in Jerusalem. These are non-believers. These are not part of the church. None of the rest dared to associate with them. However, the people held them in high esteem. So, (laughs) they were learning that people people were dying, that were committing sin in the early church. And so you didn't want to just rush in You know, this isn't a a call for all the visitors of your city to come and visit your church. When they know people are dying, and and you wonder, well, if God did the same thing today, how many people would even be left in our churches, you know? (laughs) How big would our churches be? Okay, but go back to Ananias and Sapphira's sin and God's chastisement, or whatever you want to call this, his, His judgment upon them. What does that tell you about how God regards sin? Very, serious. Very seriously, and maybe we don't take it as seriously as we ought. If God is so serious about sin, how can we be uh, casual about it? But but we are right. I mean, if we were to be totally honest, there are times when we're pretty casual about the sin in our life. We don't treat it that seriously. God hates sin. Bible says he abhors it, and we're told to abhor sin in Romans chapter twelve. We're told to hate it as well. God is grieved by it. We're talk, we read in Ephesians 4 about the, the Holy Spirit being grieved at our sin. Think about the word grieve. When does a person grieve? When someone they love dies, right? It's a very strong word of emotion. God, here in Acts chapter 5, decided that he was not going to tolerate sin in this infant church. So, it's, it's maybe something for us to consider strongly this morning and ask the Lord to be working in our hearts that we would have His attitude towards sin. The specific sin mentioned here is hypocrisy, I think, if we boil this down. Ananias and Sapphira were trying to appear as something that they were not. They tried to appear as though they're giving all this money, yet they weren't doing that. The Greek word for hypocrisy, Hypocrit, hypocrites means an actor on a stage. Back then when the people performed a play, they would hold up these masks in front of their faces and they would you know, pull up, pull up a mask and then they'd go back here, put up a different mask and play a different part. So it was playing a character, playing a part in a play. It wasn't being yourself. It was being somebody else. And so they were pretending to be these righteous and holy and sacrificial and giving believers. And the fact was that they really weren't. So hypocrisy comes to play. So I, I think a lesson here is: let's not deliberately try to deceive one another in the church into thinking that we're better than we really are. Isn't that a, a temptation? We want people to think well of ours, and so we want—we don't want to tell the real dirt <laughs> in our lives. But yeah, yeah. So I guess the, the lesson is: let's let's just be real with each other try to be honest um, because we love each other, right? We're going we're gonna to accept each other. We're going to pray for each other. And I, I think the Lord has given us probably a, a, a great deal of honesty amongst the church. I'm thankful for that. And people confess sins quite freely and I think that's good. That's a good sign that we're not trying to put on masks in front of each other. Okay, so the last one here is great power. Now, It comes up in chapter 4, verse 33. I I think there's two examples of this great power that was taking place in the early church. One is in verse 33. With great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. So, there's great power in their testimony. Or you might say their preaching. We find examples of their preaching in Acts 2 and Acts 3, when Peter preaches about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it's attended with great power because multitudes are coming to Christ as he's preaching about the risen Christ. So that's one aspect here, power in preaching. But then we have this whole se- uh, section here in verse 12 to 16 of chapter 5 where we see power that's displayed in signs and wonders. Let's read this one. At the hands of the apostles many signs and wonders were taking place among the people. And they were all with one accord in Solomon's portico, but none of the rest dared to associate with them. However, the people held them in high esteem. And all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women were constantly added to their number. You see, um, this was amazing church growth right here. (laughs) Amazing. To such an extent that they even carried the sick out into the streets and laid them on cots and pallets, so that when Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on any one of them. Also, the people from the cities in the vicinity of Jerusalem were coming together, bringing people who were sick or afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all being healed. So, number one, great power in preaching. And I... I think there are times and seasons throughout the history of the church where we really see this demonstrated in a powerful way. Um, Usually it's times of revival, sovereign revival, where God just comes in a way that is remarkable. It's not your usual order of business. You see the Lord doing something new, something powerful. For example, you could look back to the First Great Awakening under Whitfield and Wesley where multitudes were being converted by open-air preaching in the fields. Um, Jonathan Edwards, the Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. You had all of that going on in the First Great Awakening. The Second Great Awakening, you have these revivals taking place here in America. A lot of camp meetings where a lot of craziness takes place, but a lot of real powerful conversions also take place at the same time. You have the Welsh Revival in the early 1900s. And probably most recently, the Jesus movement of the late 60s, early 70s, where multitudes of hippies were coming to Christ. And many of them are pastors still today, 50, 60 years later. So, there are are times and seasons where there is great power in preaching. This was one of them. The apostles were manifesting great power as they were giving testimony to the resurrection of Christ. But there there was also power being displayed through signs and wonders. Now notice specifically in our text, who it was that was doing the signs and wonders. So, go back to 512. At the hands of who? The apostles. apostles. Now that also is the same thing that we read in chapter 2, 43. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. Many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. So the apostles were the ones, primarily, that were working these signs and wonders. Were the apostles the only ones in the book of Acts who worked a sign or a wonder? Can you think of anyone else that was not an apostle? Stephen? Stephen? And Philip. Philip went down to Samaria. He was laying his hands on them. Demons were coming out. People were being healed. So signs and wonders are happening. So... We've got got two things that we need to keep in mind here. Number one is, yes, let's let's agree with the Scripture that the Apostles were the ones primarily that God was using to work these signs and wonders. But on the other hand, there are regular ordinary Christians that are also doing miraculous things. So on the one hand, we, we can't say, For myself, I can't be a cessationist. I can't say God can no longer, or God will no longer do a sign or a wonder or a miracle today. But on the other hand, I have to admit that this was a remarkable time. I don't believe we have apostles today of the same stature that we had back in the first century. I, I, the Bible says that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. So once you lay a foundation, you don't keep adding more foundations. It's laid, it's done. So this was an unusual time in the history of the church where you had these men that knew Jesus and walked with Jesus and saw him in his resurrection state and they were given great power and they were working signs and wonders. So we, we, need, to, we need to just know that and understand that and admit, okay, we may not be able to see everything all the time like we see here in the book of Acts. And that we've got to be okay with that. Amen. Right? On the other hand, I can't go to the other extreme and say, well, don't ever expect the miraculous. Don't pray for the, the sick. Don't expect demons to be um, called out of people. No, no. We, God, can do what he wants, God can do what he wants to do. If God is sovereign, we, we can't, we shouldn't try to limit him. We shouldn't try to put rules on what God can do or tell people don't expect this anymore. No, we should pray. and we should, If someone is sick, let's pray for them. If someone is indwelt by an evil spirit, let's in the name of Jesus command the spirit to come out. Okay, there, n- nothing's changed. It's just that we don't have apostles. And they were the ones primarily being used to do these, these wonders and signs. Um, What was the result of these signs and wonders? What do we see here? Verse 14. All the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women were constantly added to their number. So the signs and the wonders led to conversion. Now miracles in and of themselves can't convert anybody. We know that because when Lazarus was raised from the dead, It just made the religious leaders angry and wanted to kill both Lazarus and Jesus. It didn't convert them. But we do find in the book of Acts that conversions sometimes are linked to miracles. Like Acts chapter 9. You look at the ministry of Peter. Twice it says that all of Lydda and Joppa and Sharon turned to the Lord after they saw these miracles that Peter was doing in their midst. I think what miracles do is they can arrest people's attention to, to focus in on what is being said. Like, maybe this is real. Look, I can't deny what I just saw. I better listen to what this guy's telling me. So it can get people's attention, but then the Holy Spirit is really the only one who is able to bring from death to life. And he does do do that through regeneration. So, the particular signs and wonders are mentioned in verse 16. Um, They were bringing people who were sick, that's number one, or afflicted with unclean spirits. So you have the sick, and you have people that were demon-possessed. Both of them are in great need. And the apostles are casting out spirits and healing the sick. And I find that interesting, because look at the, the life of Jesus. Besides preaching, what did he go about doing? Healing the sick, sick. casting out demons. Then he takes his twelve, he sends his his twelve on a mission, what are they supposed to do? Preach the gospel, heal the sick, cast out demons. Then he takes 72 other people, sends them out, what are they supposed to do? Preach the gospel, cast out demons and heal the sick. And then in Mark chapter 16, Jesus rises from the dead and he gives the great commission and what does he tell them to do? Preach the gospel to all creation? Uh, You shall lay hands on the sick, and they shall recover, and you'll cast out demons. He says, same three things. So, let's broaden our horizons. Maybe God, maybe the Lord has a healing ministry for one of us. Wouldn't it be wonderful if someone had a gift of healing where they, like uh, Stanley was telling us that he thinks that Janelle may have that gift. Because she often will pray for people, and they will often recover. Wouldn't it be a blessing to the body of Christ for the Lord to give one of us a gift like that? And we shouldn't we should say, oh, that can't happen today. Why not? Why couldn't it? <laughs> you know, 1 Corinthians 13 says that the, um, these partial gifts will be here until the perfect comes. And I think the perfect has to re- refer to Jesus Christ and His second coming. So the gifts are here, maybe not in the same uh, abundance. That's up to the Lord to decide. But the Lord can still sovereignly distribute his gifts. How many were healed? The end of verse 16. says they were all being healed. So an amazing time of spiritual revivals taking place. God is using his apostles. If we're honest, we have to admit we're not seeing in our day what we see here in the pages of scripture. We're not seeing it. There is an unusual anointing of the Holy Spirit upon these men. Um, but let's raise our expectation to, to the fact that we can believe God could do the same thing today. We need the power of God in our lives. We need the power of God when we testify to the resurrection of Christ. So let's ask to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Make that a daily prayer. And then when we have opportunity to testify of Christ, that the Lord would grant power to that tes- testimony. So that's one way. And, and God still answers prayer today. God can answer prayer in dramatic ways, in supernatural ways. And when that happens, that can be a testimony to the power of God. Jeff Vanderstelt likes to say this. We need to live in such a way that our life requires a supernatural explanation. In other words, I, I, I can't explain it any other way that this has to be God. So that's the kind of life we ought to desire that we're living. It requires a supernatural explanation. Okay, let's bring down our conclusion to these three, three questions I want to ask you. Is it great grace that causes your love for the brethren to overflow in gifts of charity? Is that true, or is God's great grace causing you to abound in sacrificial giving to other people? Two, is it great fear of God that causes you to reverence Him, fear His displeasure, and walk before Him uprightly? Do you have a healthy fear of God in your life? This might be difficult for us here in our generation, here in America, because I don't think we see a lot of real Fear of God. We, everything seems to be dumbed down and made so, so casual. But there should be a fear of God in our lives. Yes, deep reverency. Um, yeah. And then third, is it great power when you testify to the reality of Jesus Christ or pray for the sick or those oppressed by the devil? Do you see the power of God In your life through your life that's something that we should desire is the Lord using me to deliver people from Satan's grip is the Lord using me when I share a testimony about Christ and his resurrection so here we have grace fear and power wonderful blessings these are the three things that 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 gave greatness to the early church. Not because they were great in and of themselves, but because they had a great God who was giving them these blessings. And let's ask the Lord to give us the same ones. Amen. And Lord, we do. We just come to you right now in Jesus' name. And Lord, we humbly ask that you would do the same things that we're reading about here in Scripture. We pray, Lord, that we would be open and expectant for you to grant any of your gifts to those in our midst, that they would be used in the way you desire, not to achieve personal recognition or applause or any of that, Lord, but that Jesus Christ would be glorified. We pray, Lord, that you give us the grace of giving, that we would truly love each other. Give us wisdom to know how to do that, Lord, when it comes to personal family members or the greater Christian community. And Lord, we ask for that reverence, that fear of God in our lives, that we wouldn't just be so casual, but that we would truly walk before you in deep reverence of heart and soul. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.